Don't take yourself too seriously and be intensely skeptical of those who do. It's a quote I heard that uh, I'm trying to live by. It's hard, man. So I'm going to, um, in this episode, give a little bit of a theory on modern political movements, and then I'm going to share basically with myself. Nobody's fucking listening to this thing. That's all right, even though the tone of my voice gives away that it's not all right with me, but whatever. Small steps. Maybe this is just for me to listen to anyway. But I'm going to share sort of my approach to life and how I'm trying to live. I guess those of you who know me can tell me whether or not I'm full of shit. So here's my take on modern political movements. I think many people are unhappy with their personal lives for any number of reasons. Perhaps they're frustrated with their lack of attention from attractive members of the opposite sex. Maybe they're frustrated with their inability to get ahead at their work, their career. Maybe their lives don't have any real direction and they're frustrated by the lack of options. Maybe they're just mad about being fat and ugly. Throughout human history, these types of personal conditions have engendered feelings of insecurity in people. I mean, that's human nature and it doesn't change. But given insecurity, that's a part of the human condition, I think the Internet's enabled a wave of narcissism also to sweep over the American people. A citizenry that's already primed for egotism and narcissism by the very nature of our society's emphasis on the individual. Social media feeds our insecurities by allowing us to indulge in the act of comparing ourselves to the highly stylized life projections of millions of people we don't even know personally. We then overcompensate for this insecurity, because let's be honest, when you're comparing yourself to millions, people always find that others that they don't measure up to, right? It's only a matter of the number game. We overcompensate for this security by using the social media megaphone to project our own engineered and calculated self-image projections out into the world. So you're going to find that if you go out there on the internet, you're not the richest person, you're not the most successful person, you're not the best looking person, you're not the most sexually appealing person. There's lots of people that are all those things more than you are. So what's left for the individual, the average person, to hold up to society and take self-pride in? If you look on the internet and you find people who are better than you at everything, who are better looking, who are richer, whose lives are more interesting or fulfilling than ours, you start to feel like a loser. What can a disaffected loser turn to as the basis for their Declaration to the world that, hey, I'm special too. Morality, right? That's the one thing that can't really be verified. Some people call it virtue signaling. That's a charged term that makes me sound like I'm some right-wing nut job. But regardless of whatever your personal frustration comes from, and mine are all those things. I don't feel like I'm as successful as I should be, as well liked by the opposite sex as I should be, you know, as wealthy as I should be, as recognized for my talent as I should be. So now our well fed narcissism drives us to deny the possibility that, well, I know I'm fucking great, but nobody's acknowledging that. It couldn't be me that's the reason for my shitty life. The internet's also facilitated the breaking down of most of our nationally shared cultural touchstones, right? We used to have professional sports leagues to bring us together as Americans. That's a thing of the past. We used to have movies and television, but the proliferation of cable channels and streaming video services and YouTube videos has splintered that into a series of small cult followings. We used to have music. Napster and our lack of overall education has destroyed that. 
traditional religions in steep decline. It's seen by most people as antiquated. I mean, the fucking coronavirus, people decide, well, we just won't go to church. She tells you all you need to know there. The only America-wide cultural experience we have left to share is national fucking politics, specifically the presidential elections. We feel isolated, you know? We long to be a part of something. But on the national platforms of social media where we feel most lonely, the only group to become a part of is a national political faction. This allows for an easy projection of personal frustration onto larger national externalities like the president. I couldn't possibly be the source of my trouble since I'm special. So it must be true that racism or sexism or the Republicans or the liberals or illegal immigrants or the police or Marxists, that's actually the cause of my shitty-ass life, and if they would just get the fuck out of the way, I'd be happy. What do you want to do with your life? How do you want your life to feel? What kind of person do I want to be? What's the goal of my life, you know? I'm asking these questions of you and myself. Arthur Schopenhauer, among others, asserted that life was mainly full of suffering and that suffering and strife were inescapable. Buddhists and Taoists view life, and you're going to forgive me if I'm a little off, but they also both view life as suffering as well, and they say that to find meaning in the suffering is the only way to live. There's no point in trying to avoid the sufferings and the pain and the strife because even if you can overcome those things, the striving and the conflict, then you're just left with a sense of ennui. There's no end to it. You have to accept that. Everybody can imagine what hell is, but nobody can really imagine what heaven is like. Think about why that is. Don't make the mistake of aiming for a happy life. A happy life's both impossible and impractical. No one is able to avoid unhappiness forever. Every single human life that's ever been lived has known sadness and disappointment. So to hope for happiness all the time is an unrealistic endeavor, and it's a waste. Plus, we need all of our emotions. An emotion only gets its intensity by way of its contrast with another emotional state. I mean, can you actually even be happy, truly happy, without knowing what it's like to feel sadness? Hasn't having our full range of emotional experience been an evolutionary advantage for humans? I mean, if, we, if they weren't all necessary, we wouldn't have them all. Pursuit of a fulfilling life instead is a more practical goal. Fulfillment implies success and reward, but it also entails struggle and failure. That's scary to people. But pursuit of a fulfilling life isn't emotionally one-sided, okay? And that seems to match the reality of life. It also corresponds more closely with our own evolutionary history. Man's entire, mankind's entire existence has been one big struggle. To prevail in that struggle, even in limited ways, small Don Quixote type ways, is to prevail over life itself. In working towards a goal, even negative emotions can lead to positive outcomes. There is no triumph without the struggle. It's risky, yeah. A fulfilling life is suggestive of personal choice. You go out and pursue the ends that you want to achieve. I define success for myself. Contentment comes on my terms, not someone else's. So what follows is my best attempt to synthesize decades of experience and learning and failure, humiliation and triumph success and happiness and sadness, disappointment and surprise into a cohesive and coherent approach to existence that best sets 
myself and the individual up for a life of contentment. I wouldn't be saying this if this wasn't shit I'm trying to do in my own life. And I think it's it's the only way I know how to live. And I, I hope that more people also can adopt this because I've thought long and hard about it. So here's the first piece. There's four main tenets. The first one is know thyself. And that was written on the uh, oracle at Delphi in ancient Greek times. So when you would go in to see the oracle and they would tell you about, you know, answer your questions to the future, the thing it said was know thyself. But this is such a straightforward and simple concept that it might paradoxically actually prove difficult for me to provide an adequately detailed explanation. Let me try nonetheless, okay? I am the only self I'm ever going to have. You're the only self that you're ever going to have. So it follows that the only way to properly be yourself and myself is to know myself, for you to know yourself. You may ask, but isn't self-knowledge easy and obvious? I mean, who doesn't know what they like and dislike? First of all, think about how many times you've done something that you had no idea why the fuck you did it in the first place. How many times have you blurted out something that you knew full well was going to get you in trouble? I've done that so many times. Have you ever been guilty of self-sabotage? I sure as shit have. You ever been addicted to anything? Any bad habits at all? I mean, to act without a proper understanding of why the action was taken is to surrender agency and decision-making to the murky depths of your own primal subconscious. This basically means you're a slave, and most likely a slave to your suppressed emotions, which can be capricious and destructive. Secondly, there's a huge difference between knowing the things you like and dislike and knowing why you like and why you dislike those things, okay? Say, for instance, what you look for in another member of the opposite sex is it because of your mother or if you're a if you're a woman is it because of your father in any way why these are things that we don't exactly know the answers to until we sort of look within ourselves okay self-improvement's impossible without self-knowledge but is it mandatory i think so Degradation of the self over time doesn't seem like a smart way to go, and stasis over time seems almost paradoxical, right? I believe we have one way to go. That's upward and onward. Those who remain the same will be left behind by life and must face increasing difficulties as life throws more and more responsibility at you. More than anything, though, knowledge should inform all action. How can I prove this? Well... To act without knowledge is to act randomly and irresponsibly. To go on a journey in a land that you know nothing about is irresponsible and unintelligent. To do anything without knowing why that specific action was taken is wasteful and irresponsible to yourself. You must know yourself, and that means knowing why you are, what your faults are. If self-improvement's the goal, a starting point would seem like a necessity. So knowledge of your strengths and, most importantly, your weaknesses is paramount to reducing the weakness and augmenting the strengths. You have to take a serious look inside yourself and figure out what's holding you back. You're the only person that is in control of your life, okay? I can only speak for myself, okay? I, I, I tend to blame my parents' divorce for a lot of shit. I tend to blame other people for a lot of shit. Well, guess what? None of that was there when I was choosing not to do homework in high school, when I was fucking off in college, when I was thinking I was too good to do things at my jobs. Those are my faults. I'm the only one that's responsible for that bullshit, okay? Every girlfriend I've had that didn't end up... You know, the right way or the way I wanted it to. It's not anybody else's fault but mine. 
and I'm working on it. I'm trying to get inside myself and figure out what the fuck is, that is the reason for this. If the goal of life is fulfillment, it follow that you should have an awareness of what you value enough that's going to warrant pursuing over the course of a lifetime, okay? All right, so here we go. I'm going to get into a little bit of psychology here, okay? First one is the concept of two selves, okay? In different ways, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud each developed theories of the mind that reflected a dual nature. In the case of Kahneman and Tversky, that split in the human mind was between what they called System 1, which is your instinctive, shallow, fast thinking. It's what Malcolm Gladwell talked about in his book, Blink. And system two, which is your deliberate, deep, slow thinking. When you ponder something versus when you what you react to. In the case of Freud, it was the ego and the id. And for Jung, it was the conscious self and the unconscious self. But all these conceptualizations of the mind ultimately point to a self or mind that's particularly driven by processes that are not directly under our control. All of our minds contain very old functions and instincts. No matter how civilized our culture may be, our hardwiring is old. And we are animals. Digging deeper into the aspect of ourselves and the subconscious, and one of the more important concepts a person should internalize is the notion of balance. That's most best symbolized by the yin and yang of ancient Chinese philosophy and the law of the conservation of matter in science. Balance is going to be a recurring theme throughout this, this talk, but in this specific case and section, I want to discuss uh, the balance inside minds of every single being on earth, myself included, you included. Every person has the potential for both good and evil inside them. You need to accept that. If you think you're not evil, you just haven't had the opportunity. All of us have a dark side. I do. I fucking know I do. People who believe human nature is inherently good are delusional and likely putting themselves at risk for their own suppressed dark side, or shadow, as Jung called it, to come clawing its way out of the subconscious. Julius Caesar, a brilliant man who also enslaved and murdered hundreds of thousands of people. Alexander the Great was a believer in the unity of all mankind, but he was also a megalomaniac who killed just as many people as Caesar did. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pioneer in the civil rights movement, but also a womanizer and a poor father. Think of the most revered person you can and probe inside them for their dark side. Hell, Barack Obama may be one of the most thoughtful and well-intentioned people ever to, ever to serve as the President of the United States of America, and yet he ordered an inordinate amount of drone strikes on people. You have to, just the sheer mathematics say that some of whom had to have been innocent of any kind of death penalty warranting crimes. The United States made a mistake in portraying itself to the world as this infallible champion for good. It was an impossible standard to live up to. We're not fucking Clark Kent and Superman. No nation in the history of the world has ever been morally perfect in deed or action. As such, no person has ever been purely good. Whether you believe in his divinity or not, Jesus Christ came close enough to living a morally pure life and we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. That should tell us something about the degree of difficulty involved here. So why should someone get to know their own dark side? Well, the human brain, over long periods of time, evolved certain hardwired tendencies and heuristics that proved beneficial to our prehistoric odds of survival. However, as our culture became more and more sophisticated, the mental structures and shortcuts that once helped us survive as hunter-gatherers for hundreds of thousands of years are now our potential betrayers. 
that lead us into thoughts and judgments that could be in opposition to our present-day ways of thinking and cultural beliefs and traditions. You want to read a book that will fucking outfit you for exactly what your mental biases are and where your thinking can be tricked and fooled and hot-wired? Read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. First thing to understand is that the brain uses up a tremendous amount of our energy. While it accounts for only 2% of our body mass, the brain accounts for more than 20% of the body's energy usage. This is important to know because the whole entire point of having these mental biases and heuristics is to save energy. We come up with shortcuts. Our brains are fucking lazy at worst and extremely judicious in what they'll burn calories on at best. Thinking about stuff is difficult. It's taxing. It's why we're lazy. It takes energy. But you gotta do it, or else your biases, my biases, will take over and we'll be on cruise control. So I'm gonna list out a few of these, okay? These are some of the more prominent mental biases and heuristics that tend to trip people up. I think you need to go above and beyond this to truly gain an appreciation for the limits of human reasoning and the minefield of mental lapses that we're faced with every day. First one is called, What You See Is All There Is. Our minds are wired to conclude that the limited bit of information we have is all we need to make a decision or take action. So it's your that conservation of energy in your brain that says, well, I don't need to dig deeper. I've got all the information that's needed. Second one is the law of small numbers. Here's the thing. Human, and this the coronavirus has fucking really driven this home for me. But humans aren't good at understanding statistics. And I'm talking just in general. What do statistics feel like, okay? Nobody on earth is able to describe to me what the difference between a 95% chance of something happening and a 99% chance of something happening. Most statistics are from a small sample taken from a much larger overall population, and the sample, if large enough, should be indicative of the overall population. Problem is, most samples aren't large enough to be able to draw an inference about a population. And so the law of small numbers states that in smaller sample sizes, the variation is, is going to be massive. For example, the lowest rates of cancer take place in several small towns. You could make some conclusions about this in terms of, okay, well, what does small town living give you that leads to lower cancer? But here's the thing. Here's another piece of information in terms of what you see is all there is. The highest rates of cancer also take place in small towns. Small towns are small sample sizes and they're therefore prone to wide variations. The city of Chattanooga is not an accurate representation of the COVID. Moving on, anchors were prone to suggestion even in the smallest matters, often without even realizing it. For example, there was an actual study where participants were asked to spin a random number, quote-unquote, wheel that was actually rigged to either stop on the number 12 or the number 45. And the participants in the study were asked to spin the wheel, and it would land on either a 12 or a 45, and then they were to estimate the total number of African nations in the UN, okay? And half the participants got a 12, and half the participants got a 45 on the wheel. Well, guess what? The average of the participants that were received a 12 on their spin averaged a response of 22 nations, and the ones who got a 45 averaged a response of 50. Just from the, a fucking wheel that they're told has nothing to do with anything, and yet it's still 22 versus 50 in their guess. There's something called availability. That's the fourth one. And it's judging frequency by the ease with which instances come to mind. So if you can recall uh, something more easily from memory, it's going to have a more exaggerated probability of being true. So like personal experiences that are more available than statistics or incidents that happen to strangers. So like example, the week after a major plane crash that was all over the news, 
people are going to estimate the safety of flying as being less safe than they normally would. Also, you know, if you can quickly think of uh, lots of supporting evidence for something, you're more likely to believe that thing. Strangely enough, people that were asked to uh, think of three reasons to support a thesis uh, were more secure in that thesis than people that could provide seven, but if the last two or three of that seven took them a while to think of, because it was harder to think of all the reasons, even though you got fucking seven reasons versus three. Next up's an availability cascade, which is a self-sustaining chain of events which may start from media reports of a relatively minor event and lead up to a public panic and a large-scale government action. This is basically every media scare ever. Our 24-7 news cycles only intensified the impacts. Media outlets compete for attention-grabbing headlines. Scientists and others who try to dampen the increasing fear attract little attention, most of it hostile. Anyone who claims that the danger is overstated is suspected of being in on the cover-up. Does that sound fucking familiar? There's something called the effect heuristic, which is emotions. People make judgments and decisions by consulting their emotions, which is fucking stupid. How I feel about something is substituted for what I think about something. When people feel good about something, they exaggerate its benefits and downplay its risks. When they feel bad about something, they do the opposite. Emotion trumps statistics in the human mind. Know yourself. Know that you are, this is you. This is me. This isn't just dumb people. This is every fucking body. Someone's father dying of cancer causes them to overestimate their own likelihood of dying from cancer. Advertisements playing on people's fears are more effective than non-emotional advertisements. You saw that shit during the COVID, too. These sinister motherfuckers out there that are in advertising are aware of these mental biases and they're preying upon them. You need to be aware of them. Next is representativeness. And that's the degree to which an event, first, is similar in essential characteristics to its parent population, and two reflects the salient features of the process by which it's generated, okay? Representativeness heuristics are judgmental shortcuts that generally get us where we need to go and quickly, but at the cost of occasionally sending us off course, okay? This is, but here's a, he passes the eyeball test, right? Here's an example. Bernie Madoff was able to rip people off because he had the appearance of everything you'd want in someone you could trust your money with. He had the credentials, he looked like a guy, he was trustworthy, he had a nice way of talking, he had no criminal record in the past, I, I think. Number eight, halo effect. The tendency for positive impressions of a person, a company, a brand, or a product in one area to Positively influences influence one's opinion or feelings in other areas. Okay, and this is here it is. Good-looking people tend to get favorable benefit of the doubt. Ugly people tend to be viewed in non-physical realms as being ugly too. It assumes that good people do nothing but good things and vice versa. Someone here's an example. Someone who's dressed like a thug is assumed to be a criminal. That's a mental bias we all fucking have. Okay. Narrative bias. Oh my God. Narrative bias refers to people's tendency to interpret information as being part of a larger story or pattern, regardless of whether the facts actually support the full narrative. Confidence by way of coherence. There are two specific story elements that are especially strong influences on our behavior and likely to trigger biased conclusions. The first one is specific details, which make a narrative realistic and memorable, and then B, cause and effect explanations which help us understand why certain events lead to final outcomes. Here's an example. The initial events of the COVID-19 outbreak mirrored familiar sequence of events from popular movies about outbreaks, and it led us to believe COVID-19 was going to be like that fucking movie with Bruce Willis had the monkeys. We've all seen the stories of pandemics and how they unfold, and so this started unfolding like it. 
It's got to be just as bad as those things we've seen. And then the last one, which, God, this is what Twitter and basically all Fox News and CNN are built on, is called confirmation bias. People veer towards information that confirms their previous held beliefs about something. We look for things that confirm what we want to believe. Examples are Trump's impeachment, Othello interpreting Desdemona's nervous answers to his queries about her alleged infidelity as proof that she's guilty, but I mean, really, it's anything. If I believe something, I'm going to go look for facts that support that. Not, I'm not going to go, who's going to go look for facts that debunk something you're thinking? But that's what you need to be doing. You need to be looking for facts that debunk what your opinions are. You don't want to be a biased person. Those are just a few of the more prominent mental biases and heuristics. Knowing that these biases exist is of utmost importance in our modern age, where the media and other organizations like advertising will deliberately use these biases against us, and it's only going to get worse. I want to talk a little bit about truth-telling. Because I think this is something I'm guilty of, and I think that's something that a lot of people are guilty of. But it's, before you can lie to other people, you have to lie to yourself first. And I think we are all guilty of lying to ourselves. And it comes into that same thing about you need to confront yourself about your own weaknesses and your own failings, okay? Just because I want to be a guy that tells the truth all the time, that doesn't mean I am, you know? Just because I want to be a guy that has a lot of self-confidence doesn't mean I don't have a lot of insecurity and a lot of mental weakness. Because I want to be a guy that's mentally tough doesn't mean that I'm not actually a quitter. I lie to myself a lot. So how do you go about attaining self-knowledge, okay? If we're still on the first... Uh, tenet that I've gone through here of knowing yourself, how do you go about doing that? Well, the peculiar thing about the human mind is that it's almost completely blind to everything outside of the range of its immediate focus. Right? But who can afford to direct the spotlight inside themselves all the time? Nobody can. That's the fucked up part. Even when you're trying to become a better person, you're going to fuck up. With an entire world constantly taking place outside of ourselves that requires attention, how can you also do that and then look inside? You can't. So what's the solution then? I think you got to do regular, periodic self-examination performed in a deliberate and methodical way. To put it simply, setting aside time each day with the explicit purpose of looking inward in order to improve some specific aspect of yourself. For many people, that can take the form of meditation, which I define as a minimization of external stimulus in order to dedicate a short period of time for looking inward at specific objectives. The minimization of external stimuli, when I said that, that entails silence and the stillness of one's body. And that, I think, implies a heightened level of focus you clear your mind and you look inward. Then you think back on what you've done and what you want to change about yourself. And then you think to yourself, how am I going to do that next time? Okay, for all their faults, and they are many, the Jesuit sect of Catholicism employs an incredibly effective method for introspection called the examination of consciousness, or they just call it the examine for short, okay? And it's essentially a form of meditation, but with specific techniques and objectives. At the end of the day, you sit down in a silent room and you wait until you're completely still and physically relaxed. Then, you're going to walk through the day that just took place, and you're going to note the instances when you acted in a manner that was undesirable, okay? I've done this. I should examine these instances throughout my day where I've fucked up, and I take note of how I felt in the lead-up to the actual undesirable behavior, 
thought or word. You think about, okay, well, what could I have done differently, and how do I better identify situations in the future that are going to lead to similar situations, okay? So, for instance, I, I'm thinking about this morning when I lost my temper on the road at another driver. You know, I don't like being the kind of person that loses their temper. It's undesirable. I don't like myself when I lose my temper. Especially over fucking mundane stuff like how other people drive their cars. So I think back and I focus on what I was doing and think about right before the incident. Was I thinking about something else that bothered me? Was I projecting my anger with myself onto the other driver? Could I sense my blood pressure rising before I gave way to my emotions? Was there some kind of point at which I could have diffused my own temper? There has to have been a point like that. There has to be a point you cross that's right before the point of no return. And you have to be able to identify what that feels like and catch it. So I resolved next time I find myself in a similar situation, I'm going to recognize the warning signs and I'm going to take measures to depressurize. I'll remind myself that this shit is beyond trivial and unimportant. I don't know that person. And I'll use that stimulus to focus on the more important things. Whatever approach uh, you do take, make sure you're doing it every day and that you're dedicating your full attention to it, okay? Writing your thoughts down also doesn't hurt as long as you're actually revisiting your notes, you know? There's nothing more demoralizing than just going through the motions of self-improvement and having to come face-to-face -face with your failure to improve every day. And then one final thing, and this is stolen directly from David Goggins, but it's worked for me. And that's use physical activity to confront your inner, inner self. I've lately taken to running myself into the ground because that's how I don't like being a quitter. So when I run long distances, that voice inside my head that says, dude, just quit, man, come on. It comes screaming out, and this is a chance to, to take that fucking voice on and defeat it. And the more you can defeat it and the more you can get used to discomfort, the more you can gain control over those things. And personally, I think that your body, when you have a high resting heart rate because you're out of shape, or stressed, your body's going to read that as, as fight or flight, and you're always going to be anxious. And that's just not going to lead to a great day-to-day -day existence for yourself. That's how it was for me. I used to be so out of shape, and it's no coincidence that I was also hypervigilant and on edge all the time. I had a chip on my shoulder for no fucking reason other than I was out of shape. My body took it to mean that, oh, I'm being threatened. There's a lot more I could go over here. For instance, language and thought, how your words match your thinking, and it's a two-way street. I think you should identify if you're an introvert or an extrovert, and that's pretty easy. It's not whether you're good at talking to people or not. It's simply... Does human interaction require you to expend energy, or does that feed you with energy? If dealing with people burns energy from you, you're an introvert. If you feed off of personal contact and talking to other people, you're an extrovert. I think there's a lot of extroverts out there that this fucking quarantine really did a number on. But just to sum this up, know yourself. Really get in touch with who you are. Find out who you really are. Not who you want to be. Like I said, don't lie to yourself. It's only doing yourself a disservice. Alright, tenant number two, and I'm going to truncate this because... I'm running out of time already, I can see, but second tenet is called To Thine Own Self Be True. So once you know who you are, who you really are, 
then be authentic. There is no reason for you to be a fake person. Again, honesty is the key, right? You want to be a, a person that lives who you are. Nobody likes a fake person. Nobody does. Who, who have you ever thought of? Man, that guy is so great. He's such a bullshitter. He's so great. I think Hillary Clinton lost to fucking Trump. Think about that. Because she was an inauthentic person, even though he was authentically fucking reprehensible, in the minds of voters, that was better than being inauthentically non-reprehensible. A big thing that I've started uh, getting into is the writings of the ancient Stoics. And that's mainly, you know, I can sum up Stoicism pretty easily for you. And that's the fact that you are the only person you can control. How you react to things is the only thing you can control in this life. You can't control what other people do. All you can control is how you react to them. So if someone pisses you off, guess whose fault that is? That's your fault, not theirs. You're giving people power over you by letting them get to you. Be true to your fucking self. Only worry about what you can control, which is you. I don't know how any other way to put that. Look, we're all insecure. I think it's a normal part of the human condition, but it does so much fucking damage. Where does insecurity come from? Well, I think part of it comes from comparing ourselves to other people. But like I said, be true to yourself. Who gives a shit what other people are doing? Odds are it's an act, and you're not seeing the hell that goes on inside their minds. But, you know, what, what are the different types of insecurity? You feel like, okay, if you're a guy, you might get your ass whipped. Other guys are tougher than you or bully you or people are better looking than you. Right? Smarter than you. Well, A, intelligence, while it does contribute to success, hard work and sticking to it, what they call grit, is more important. And grit is just dot control over your own mind. It's mental toughness. And that's all within you. That's all within me. I'm starting to learn that. It's way too late, but I'm starting to learn it. And we overcompensate for our insecurity by way of narcissism. And when I say know yourself, I don't mean get into yourself. Don't be a narcissist. Be objectively aware of who you are. But I think America is, an, is a nation of insecure people who don't want to admit it to themselves. But there's no reason to be insecure. When I'm out and I don't think I've ever admitted this to anybody, but when I'm out with, like, a girl that I'm dating, I am constantly, for some reason, worried that she's going to be taken away from me by some better stranger. Now, how irrational is that? I'm getting over it. And, sadly, the way I get over it is fucking training jujitsu. And I don't intend to go fight people. I'm way too old for that. But at least it gives me some kind of self-confidence inside to know, you know, I feel good about myself. And there, I feel good about myself. Nobody's going to take her. I think it's important to learn history. To learn about human nature. Because human nature doesn't change. And so you look back across time and distance and see that the ancient Chinese and the ancient Romans were all thinking about this. So, Buddha, Confucius, 
uh, and Socrates all lived within a hundred or so years of each other in different areas of the world. Think about that. The way to look back and see how people behaved is actually easier because life in past times was simpler than it is now, and so you didn't have all this noise. So look, I'm going to be real quick here, okay? To kind of sum this up, because time's running out, and I'm just going to have to get to the second half, because there's four of these. And just, these are just the first two. But given that tenant one's accomplished, or at the very least pursued in earnest, the next step is to use that self-knowledge as a guidebook or a roadmap for conducting your life, okay? That implies the Stoic existence, okay? Where you do not live life according to the whims of others, okay? It implies that a comparison with others is fucking foolish. Jealousy and envy are, should be pointless to you. You shouldn't be jealous of anyone, okay? If you see someone else that you think, okay, well, you know, I'd like to be like that person, then start being like that person. But more, probably better, just be the best you. They're probably fucking jealous of you. I think stoicism and being true to yourself also tends to suppress this need to pretend to be something you're not. Artifice is difficult and unnecessary if you're living in accordance with being true to yourself. Why bullshit about your success or your happiness to other people if you don't give a fuck what they think? Or if you actually under truly understand that their approval gets you nothing of value? And like I said, being true to yourself sounds like a license to be a total narcissist to some people, but in actuality, you should be reversing and removing all narcissistic behavior. Because of that fact that narcissism is born from insecurity, it's an overcompensation when, if you know who you are, you'll be humble, but you also won't be fake. Because look, if you're living your life according to the goals or values of other people, you're aiming at a constantly moving target. To me, that sounds like slavery, too. If free will exists, which I think it does, at least if an illusion of it, then to act as a slave to the values of others is an act against free will. Existence and consciousness are valuable gifts. To cede those gifts to others is to reject your own self. Why are you alive? You have one life. Be the master of it. To your own self be true. Who gives a shit what these other people think? And that after I, I went through all the biases that we have, I mean, everybody's kind of dumb. Everybody leaps to conclusions. Everybody's overly emotional. Everybody wants things they can't have, okay? I don't mean to be crude, but it reminds me of the statement where you see some beautiful girl, I'll show you a guy who's tired of banging her. If you're a college student, you see the frat guys and the sorority girls, and you're not one of them, and you think, oh, you'd be a little bit jealousy. You'd be a little bit jealous of them, see how their lives are. Guess what? Their lives probably suck, and they're overcompensating their asses off. And that creates a lot of negative psychic energy that you nobody ever sees. Social media is the worst thing you can be on. I'm not on it. I realize that that was just making me compare myself to people, and it was making me put up a front versus who I actually am. Know thyself, I think the implication there is to know what your weaknesses are. To your own self be true is to embrace your strengths. 
That is so simplistic sounding and yet it requires every bit of effort from you and from myself. I'm going to come back and maybe do another episode on the final two. Uh, but just to run through them real quick, the, the the next one is No Pain, No Gain. And that gets back to what I was telling earlier about life is a fucking struggle. And if you think you it's not, and you think you can find a way through life without struggling, you're lying to yourself. And then the most important one, number four, talk is cheap. And the implication there is twofold, okay? The first one, obviously, is that actions speak louder than words. But then two is just minimize the shit you say in general. I got a really bad problem with that. I talk too goddamn much. I cut people off. I steamroll people with conversation because I think what I have to say is so much more fucking important and I'm making all these good points. Guess what? No, I'm not. People think I'm an ass when I do that. I know it. I got to quit that shit. Anyway, I don't think anybody's ever going to hear this, so this has just one been one long self-talk, and even then it's valuable, you know, so I don't give a shit. I would like for people to hear this. I think it'll help people. I hope so. It's all I really want to do. I don't give a shit if people think I'm smart or not. I know I'm not. Or if I am smart, it, I, trust me, I've got weaknesses everywhere else. No attention to detail. I don't work hard. I have selective work ethic. I'm insecure as a motherfucker. I need to stop lying to myself. I need to control my urges and my impulses. Get my emotions under control. It's got a lot of work to do, but... The first part is sort of identifying them, and then you just sort of go after them. I'm working hard at it. I'm meeting setbacks. It's not going to be easy. No pain, no gain. But there's no other choice. There really isn't. You're going to have a miserable life. You're going to self-medicate. You're going to take drugs. And then you're going to want to kill yourself. What kind of life is that when every single one of us has it within ourselves to be somebody special, but we just give up so easily? Don't fucking give up. Go hard at yourself. It'll be worth it. You have it within you to do this. I know this isn't funny or you know witty or whatever, but it had to be said... This is what I'm living through right now. Anyway, if you're listening to this, I care about you.